Good morning, and thank you for joining us for a market update from our co-CIOs of value, Kevin Dreyer and Chris Morangi. During the course of this meeting, we invite you to submit any questions you may have through the Q&A button on the Zoom toolbar. I will now pass it over to Chris Morangi. Great. Thank you, Matt, and welcome to everybody who's listening. Thank you for your interest. I'll start by making some macroeconomic observations. Kevin will comment on the market and stock specifics, and I'll return for our first stock spotlight feature. We'd be delighted to take questions at the end, which can again be submitted using the Zoom chat function. Although we consider ourselves bottom-up stock pickers, we understand that the macroeconomic picture is an input into our company-by-company microeconomic view. Today, I'll frame those dynamics as the four I's. The first I, not surprisingly, if you've gone grocery shopping, filled up your car, or rented an apartment recently, is inflation. In classical economic terms, robust aggregate demand, in many cases pent up after months of lockdown, exceeds aggregate supply, constrained by shortages of key inputs of everything from chips to labor to lumber to transportation. The result is a rise in the general level of prices illustrated by the latest 5% plus reading in the consumer price index. There are two key questions here. First, is this a one-time step up in prices, i.e. is inflation transitory, or is this the beginning of a period of sustained price increases? While everything is transitory on a long enough timeline, what we are hearing from companies would indicate that supply shortages won't clear up soon, and absent an air pocket in economic growth, consumers should unfortunately get used to paying more for longer. That feeds into the second question, can inflation expectations be managed? Because if they cannot, it can lead to a self-fulfilling wage price spiral of consumers demanding higher wages to pay for higher costs, leading to ever higher costs again. While difficult to measure, consumer surveys and the yield on inflation index bonds would indicate this isn't a problem yet. Of course, the Federal Reserve has a lot to do with those expectations, and that leads me to my second eye, interest rates. Among the most notable events of Q3 was the Fed confirming it would begin its taper at the end of the year on the way to outright hiking rates sometime next year. With the 10-year Treasury rate up from 1.1% in August to 1.6% today and near a post-pandemic high, the market is coming to grips with higher, albeit not dramatically higher, rates. We can't talk about inflation and interest rates, of course, without considering fiscal policy. Here, I use infrastructure, the third eye, as shorthand for the domestic agenda, which is headlined by the partisan $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill, followed by the $3.5 trillion social spending bill, the tax package that will finance that spending, and a host of other political chess pieces, including voting reform, the reappointment of Federal Reserve Chairman Powell, and the leadership of the Federal Communications Commission. Oh, and there's the ever-looming debt ceiling, which has been kicked down the road until December. While some signs point to Democrats coalescing around a tax and spend agreement smaller than first advertised, it is still likely to add fire fuel to the inflationary fire while possibly reducing long-term economic growth, neither of which are good for market multiples. Finally, we shouldn't limit ourselves to the goings-on in the U.S. After inward focus on elections and COVID, international relations, the fourth eye, are back at the fore, with China reminding the West it's now locked in a new Cold War as President Xi burnishes his legacy with crackdowns on domestic entrepreneurship, incursions into Taiwanese airspace, and demonstrations of new weapon systems. For now, we think U.S.-China relations will remain simply cool, but the potential for miscalculation on both sides is as high as we've seen it. Beyond China, Russia has newfound power to keep Europe cold as it exercises its control over natural gas while countries in the Middle East are benefiting from high oil prices. 
Japan and Germany have or will have new leaders who might not be as favorable for free markets, though Europe looks to be emerging from COVID faster than the US. On the other hand, much of the emerging world awaits vaccination from this terrible disease. Taking all these factors together, we think global economic growth and inflation should still be robust over the next 12 months. The composition of nominal growth in the US has probably changed. Just picking numbers, at the beginning of this year, we might have expected 7% real, 3% inflation for 10% nominal growth. Today, that's probably closer to 5% and 5%. On net, that's still a favorable backdrop for earnings growth, though more muted than we earlier thought, something the market was clearly largely discounting in Q3. For more specifics on how the quarter played out in the markets and for our stocks, I'll turn it over to Kevin. Thank you, Chris. So with that economic and political backdrop, it probably won't surprise you that the market had one of its most lackluster quarters since the depths of the pandemic last year. The S&P 500 did finish slightly up, gaining 0.6%, though the Russell 3000 value declined 0.9%. Our portfolios generally also declined slightly. July and August were up, led again by the big five companies that comprise roughly 25% of the S&P index, but September saw a sharp reversal with the S&P down 4.7% for the month. Small capitalization stocks fared worse than the broad market, with the Russell 2000 down 4.4% for the quarter, Russell 2000 down 3%. The downturn was caused by a confluence of factors, most of which were already touched on by Chris. I would add that the surging Delta COVID-19 variant in the U.S. and around the world has led to the tempering of economic growth forecasts, just when companies are facing increasingly difficult year-over-year comparisons for financial results as they contend with worsening inflation and supply chain issues. Near quarter end, there was also the threat of contagion from a possible bankruptcy of Chinese property developer Evergrande. But the announcement of the Fed's taper and upward march of interest rates most closely correlated with the market decline towards the end of the quarter. The tug of war between so-called value and growth stocks that has taken place since the pandemic continued, with growth stocks and the big five taking the biggest hits towards the end of September. While we, of course, have a value mentality and approach, we actually love growing companies as long as we are not paying or overpaying for them. As such, we will always look to add or eliminate positions based on market dynamics so that your portfolios are positioned to maximize upside and minimize risk. We continue to use bottom-up research to seek excellent businesses that are trading materially below private market value with one or more catalysts in place to surface value. We are pleased to see that M&A and financial engineering activity continues to rise. We expect there will be more to come. We hold a diversified portfolio of quality companies that even in different industries share many attributes, revenue growth prospects, strong free cash flow generation and pricing power, especially important today with the recent resurgence in inflation. We don't buy the market. We are bottom-up investors and buy individual stocks. With that, we will share some stock-specific observations. Perk Holdings, Sony, and Republic Services were the three primary contributors to portfolio performance during the third quarter. Perk highlighted the positive secular trends in the rental equipment industry at an investor day in September and would benefit from any infrastructure deal. Sony hosted a PlayStation showcase in early September, which revealed the company's studios are working on a robust pipeline of games for the PS5. Also during the quarter, Universal Music, one of Sony Music's main competitors, had a successful IPO, leading the market to reevaluate the value of Sony's music division. Waste collection firm Republic Services reported solid Q2 results that highlighted improvement in gross margins 
as well as notable strength and volumes. The company has high pricing power and can leverage M&A opportunities to help drive sustained, creative, inorganic growth. On the negative side, Grupo Televisa, Q-Rate Retail, and Edgewell Personal Care were the three primary detractors to portfolio performance during the third quarter. Shares of Grupo Televisa retraced second quarter gains after reporting earnings in early July, with price weakness at least partially attributed to a sell-off among emerging market stocks driven by negative news flow from China and strengthening of the dollar. The primary drivers of long-term growth at Televisa should include content availability for an increasing Spanish-speaking population. Think Netflix of the Hispanic world. Shows of Q-rate retail gave back some of its gains from the previous quarter as concerns about product availability plagued retailers broadly. The company is well-positioned to benefit from the continued trend of online shopping, wide adoption of video streaming, coinciding with the recent launch of their streaming service on Comcast, and rising consumer engagement on digital platforms. Finally, shares of Edgewell Personal Care gave back some of its gains over the course of the third quarter and more since, as investors took profits and concerns about inflation-driven margin compression. Reopening economy should provide an increase in demand for personal care goods, including Edgewell's shaving and skin and sun care products. While the company is contending with higher input costs, Gillette recently announced price increases with Edgewell likely to follow. At about seven times EBITDA and 11 times earnings, we believe EPCA shares offer exceptional value. With that, I will kick it back to Chris for our new stock spotlight feature. Great, thanks again, Kevin. Uh, I'm excited to um, spend some time on uh, an update on a stock uh, that we like. Um, doing what we do best, which is going deep on individual ideas. Our inaugural idea is, uh, is timely um, given it's fall and uh, there's the proximity of a, of a likely catalyst. For those who aren't baseball fans, the Atlanta Braves, the oldest team in America, uh, is currently battling for the National League pen. More interestingly for us, the Braves are one of the few opportunities public market investors have to participate in value creation in sports, what I call the ultimate franchise business. The Braves are owned by an entity called Liberty Braves, which has 61 million shares across three classes of stock. Um, and at about $27 per share, the market cap is 1.6 billion with about a half a billion in net debt. With that comes membership in an exclusive club of 30 baseball teams. This one with a, a storied history extending from Hammer and Hank Aaron, who passed in January, I might add, to Freddie Freeman and encompassing much of the Southern United States. Also has a, a new league-leading stadium, entertainment, and office complex known as the Battery. Now, this isn't just nostalgia, fun, and games for us. Getting to the numbers, based on recent sales of franchises, including the Los Angeles Dodgers for $3.2 billion and the New York Mets for $2.4 billion, we think the Braves are worth at least $2.2 billion. Add the value of the Battery at $700 million and $100 million of other assets, including the minor league complex, and subtracting the debt leaves an equity value of around $2.5 billion, or $42 per share. Better yet, we think that value at least keeps pace with inflation and is somewhat insulated from economic cycles. So what gets the stock from 27 to over 40? That's where the catalysts come in. And there are many, including some minor ones like success in the postseason, a general reopening of live entertainment post-COVID, and the launch of an MLB-owned streaming service. The main event, to mix metaphors, is an upcoming bit of financial engineering. And that involves first knowing that Liberty Braves is part of a group of companies controlled by media mogul, Dr. John Malone, who first built TCI into the world's largest cable company in the 80s and 90s, and has spent much of the last two decades 
investing and servicing value in a variety of content and distribution companies. Without getting into the weeds around taxes, after January 2022, Liberty Braves, which is currently a tracker stock representing economic but not legal ownership of its assets, will be spun off as a normal standalone corporate entity. That should facilitate the acquisition of the Braves by a variety of interested wealthy individuals as soon as next fall. So the Braves check all of our boxes. It's a great asset trading at a significant discount to private market value with a number of hard near-term catalysts. And that's why we own it on your behalf. And to discuss those holdings and any other questions you might have, we'll turn it over to Q&A. As a reminder, if you have any questions, please use the Q&A button on your Zoom toolbar. The first question, what stocks might be inflation beneficiaries? I could start with that one, Matt. Um, it's a question we get often. I think we might've gotten it last time, but it's worth reiterating given the focus on inflation. Among the characteristics that we uh, seek in companies that we invest in is, is pricing power. And an even better situation is a company that has pricing power, but whose, whose costs are, are largely fixed. And there are a number of examples uh, of companies like this. Uh, I mentioned the Braves as, as being one of them. Um, the broadband companies would be another. Uh, clearly the providers of broadband have pricing power. They demonstrated that to a certain extent during uh, the pandemic, uh, but the cost of getting you uh, those faster speeds is, is really de minimis. Uh, another example would be uh, in the waste companies. Um, Kevin mentioned Republic being a significant contributor to performance this past quarter. Uh, the uh, waste companies also have pricing power. They are in most of their contracts are inflation indexed, and it doesn't really cost much more for them to um, to use the landfill space which uh, they have across the country. Um, so those are just a few uh, examples. I don't know if Kevin wants to add any. Yeah, I would also add that uh, many consumer staples stocks historically have been good conduits for inflation. Um, Nestle just reported results today and uh, you know, made note that both for them and for the entire industry, uh, while it's been a short-term difficulty in getting through prices, they are getting through those prices. There is not a volume impact. And they feel that, especially as we get beyond some of the supply chain issues, uh, even if inflation is, is here to stay, that's something that the uh, food and beverage industry can contend with uh, quite well and historically has been uh, value accretive for the industry. Thank you both. Next question, how much China exposure do you have? I think the, the short answer to that question is quite little. Uh, if you look at, at our holdings, um, we don't own any companies that are you know, simply direct China plays. Uh, China does comprise a piece, sometimes an important piece, of business of various companies. Uh, Diageo would be one that comes to mind, a global uh, spirits and beer producer, uh, but still you know, not, not an especially large piece of their business. Uh, so really no, no direct exposure there. Yeah, we do have research capabilities in China uh, and the broader um, East Asian uh, geography. Um, and we, we look at those companies, obviously China is a very important country in the world we've had some questions uh, about the rule of law in, in that country, which is which has kept us at bay. One of the ways, as Kevin uh, mentioned, we participated in a market like that is um, make it here uh, and sell it there um, in a variety of respects. But um, yeah, so far we've uh, we have pretty limited exposure to China. Great. Next question: Are any other public sports teams held in the portfolio? Yeah, good question. Um, 
yes is the answer. There, there are a limited number of publicly traded uh, sports assets out there. Uh, we own one of them, have owned one of them for a very long time, and that is uh, the Nick, the NBA's Knicks and the NHL's Rangers, uh, which are owned wholly by uh, Madison Square Garden Sports, MSGS. Um, you recall that that company was originally spun out of uh, Cablevision uh, in 2010, uh, it subsequently spun off its cable networks and uh, its venues uh, as two, two entities, which are now one, Madison Square Garden Entertainment. And again, um, the Knicks and the Rangers are the pure play uh, assets of, of MSGS. So a lot of the same dynamics uh, as with the Braves, uh, inflation indexed, um, we hope upwardly mobile franchises. Um, I think one of the uh, uh, most interesting parts of this is that despite having a, a pretty miserable decade on the court, uh, the Knicks are the most valuable or second most valuable uh, franchise in, in the NBA. Uh, and um, we expect that to continue. And we think there's a lot of ways uh, for the uh, significant value there to get surfaced in the public market price, including through uh, share purchases and potentially one day a sale or summer or all of that company. The next question, do you have any predictions on the commercial real estate market in the U.S. in 2022? So I'll jump in on that one. You know, we don't have any any specific uh, predictions for the the U.S. real estate uh, commercial real estate market. Uh, I would say that commercial real estate is generally, um, you know, not something that we're making specific investments in. It might, you know, be a component of, uh, you know, a handful of holdings, uh, but you know, no real specific investments in that area. What we do follow closely is the U.S. Res- residential. Uh, housing industry, which obviously has seen uh, quite robust uh, demand as well as increased prices, um, you know, especially outside of, of uh, cities themselves. Um, and in particular, uh, we focus in on a lot of the suppliers uh, to that home renovation, uh, et cetera. So we are constantly combing that market for for ideas, but um, you know, I don't think we have any any firm view on commercial real estate. The next question, there has been a recent decline in charter. Are you still optimistic in cable? Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, so just stepping back, uh, we've been big fans of uh, distribution, always known as uh, connectivity or, or broadband infrastructure uh, for decades here at, at the firm. Um, and, and recently, um, the basis for investing in the cable companies is what I've called the broadband hedge. That is, no matter what uh, streaming service you use, how, what, what entertainment um, you consume, how you consume it, you need a fast broadband connection to do so. And in most of the United States, at least, that fast broadband connection uh, is um, supplied by the cable company, which garners, as I mentioned earlier, um, significant pricing power. We still think that's the case. Um, the market is getting more competitive, obviously, with uh, some uh, fiber bills by the telecommunications companies. There's the um, potential for wireless, notably um, 5G, to be more competitive in offering connectivity. Um, but we think the market has over-discounted those things. The, the biggest risk, however, in cable always has been, always will be regulatory. And there's some um, hand-wringing about, as I, me- I mentioned earlier in my script, who the next chairman of the uh, federal communications might be. And um, uh, among the names that are speculated are, are some very progressive individuals who would be headline risk mostly to the U.S. cable companies, but in, in actuality, probably wouldn't have much impact. Um, the the um, process of regulating these companies, they, they are currently lightly regulated, I would say, 
uh, is um, is pretty onerous, subject to court challenge and, and and a very long process at the FCC and ultimately in Congress. So, you know, something obviously we're we're very aware of. Um, you know, we uh, own Charter via uh, Liberty Broadband, which um, owns about thirty percent of the company, twenty five percent of the company, and um, it does so at a discount. We also do own Comcast, which has uh, some other assets, including. Uh, its media assets, and especially the parts, which are reopening beneficiaries. And we've been looking overseas a bit more actively at names like Liberty Global, which is essentially the cable company for Europe uh, and is subject to a different set of competitive and, and regulatory dynamics. Thank you very much, Chris. Can you name any stocks you have added to the portfolio recently? Sure. Uh, as I, I mentioned, you know, based on market dynamics, uh, business dynamics, and of course, price, uh, we are always uh, adding to uh, and, and eliminating positions from, from portfolios. Uh, so during the last quarter, we did start a new position in General Motors, um, which we think is very well positioned in the U.S. auto market, uh, with demand likely exceeding supply for the next several quarters, if not years. And at the same time, the company is transforming itself uh, with the goal of being 100% uh, electric vehicle by 2035. Uh, finally, its cruise autonomous vehicle unit has garnered a $30 billion valuation from outside investors, and we're paying a, a pretty low price, 10 or, or less times earnings uh, for that. So that strikes us as, as pretty good value. We also started a position in Marcus Corporation, which has exposure to both theater entertainment, which is about 80% of EBITDA, uh, and hotels, 20%. Uh, making it a strong COVID reopening investment. Healthy balance sheet has allowed it to weather the initial wave of COVID uh, a little better than, than most of its peers. Um, so those are, those are two new additions. Thank you very much, Kevin. Next question. Why do you like Vivendi? Sure, I'll take that one. Um, and this is uh, another name that's new to at least some portfolios, certainly not new to the firm. We have a significant amount of accumulated compounded knowledge about this company going back to the days when it was a French water company um, and then became a, a media behemoth uh, and has for the last uh, four or five years essentially been directed by uh, a French entrepreneur named Vincent Bolleray. Uh, and um, the company has been in the news a little bit over the last month because in September they spun off uh, uh, 60% of Universal Music, the largest music company in the world, as a separate company. They still own 10%. Uh, and uh, what's left uh, in terms of businesses there are uh, uh, Canal Plus, which is a, the largest francophone uh, programming entity in the world, um, Havas, which is a large uh, advertising agency, uh, and a, uh, a, a publishing business known as Editas, uh, which, is, um, which they continue to grow through acquisition. We think those assets, Editas and, and, uh, and um, Canal Plus in particular, have the potential to be transformed uh, through digitization uh, into, into um, businesses that, that can last a long time. Content still is king, and in many cases, they own that content. So uh, the company is very cheap post the spin, trading at around two or three times EBITDA, uh, and uh, with, with a lot of cash on the balance sheet, and a controlling shareholder who could possibly uh, attempt to take it a private and or at least repurchase a significant amount of the stock, which would be the catalyst for getting the getting it from around 11 euros today to our private market value estimate, which is closer to 18 or 19. Thank you. Next question. What is your outlook 
for M&A and financial engineering? I think our outlook is that uh, under current conditions that we're going to see both both continue as well as increase. I mean, we've seen many uh, examples of this uh, happening. A lot of M&A deals. It's been increasing steadily since the depths of the pandemic. Financial engineering, uh, which I'd say was a bit more prevalent a few years ago, we had a lot of companies doing split ups. That's happening more and more uh, as well. And I think we're also starting to see more activists show up uh, in stocks and pressure companies to separate themselves when you have disparate businesses, especially when those businesses uh, might have uh, candidates to be be candidates to be sold to another entity. So, uh, you know, I think there are always puts and takes. Um, the regulatory environment for M&A might not be quite as friendly now as it was a year ago. Um, although the last administration, you know, also was a bit unpredictable on deals uh, as well. And interest rates are always a factor, um, you know, as well in the, in the M&A uh, equation. And while I think we expect interest rates to, to probably go a bit higher, um, they're still at a very low level. So the uh, buy versus build math uh, still skews pretty strongly towards buying. Um, whether that's for uh, an LBO or especially for a strategic who can extract significant synergies from a transaction. Thank you, Kevin. Do, you, do portfolios reflect any ESG themes? Yeah, another hot topic, obviously. Um, we as a firm have been managing um, socially responsible portfolios uh, since the mid 80s um, and, uh, and that's evolved in many cases into ESG, environmental social governance. We have an ESG mutual fund. We have ESG separate accounts. We also launched, uh, you may know, uh, a uh, sustainability focused uh, ETF, uh, active ETF called Love Our Planet and People LOP um, a few months ago. Um, and I've gotten a lot of interest in that. Um, so uh, yeah, we're always looking at, at, at ESG. Sometimes we find some good ideas. Uh, Kevin actually mentioned one of them earlier, which might not be obvious, which is General Motors. It's amongst um, a, a, a variety of kind of incumbent companies that are transforming themselves um, to be more sustainability focused. We, we think um, GM is going to be one of the leading uh, automotive companies in, in that respect. Um, you've got um, companies like uh, some of the established utilities, which are focus on renewables and investment in others. We wouldn't expect us to, uh, in, in, on the sustainability side, in, invest in the latest, greatest um, solar um, firms. It's a very competitive market, um, but we are, uh, we are finding some ideas in that areas and, and really looking at all of our stocks with an ESG uh, lens. Have your portfolios benefited from the recent price of oil? So, so we haven't, we, we have not uh, been directly invested with, with some exceptions uh, in, in the integrateds and um, the, the uh, EMP companies but uh, some of the suppliers to those companies um, you know uh, we, we have invested in historically uh, companies like flowserve and others um, you know it, it obviously oil has a significant impact on a lot of parts of the economy on net it's possibly a probably a negative because it, it does drive up input costs something that we watch. Um, and uh, we, we obviously do have uh, significant research in that area as well. Thank you, Chris. Are there any more questions? We have another question. What is your view of the Aerojet deal? 
Well, we, we as, as many of you know, we, uh, we have been investors in Aerojet Rocketdyne for uh, a number of years, and, and, uh, and they have agreed to be acquired by Lockheed Martin. Um, you know, hard to say which way the wind blows sometimes, especially these days in, in Washington. Uh, the Defense Department is certainly supportive of that transaction. Um, the FTC has gotten a little bit more aggressive, obviously. Um, you know, I think that's a, we, we, have, we have harvested that position in our portfolios for the most part. Um, I think that's better left to the merger arbitrage team who's really focused on those, picking up those last pennies. Great. As we uh, pass 12, um, Kevin and Chris, thank you both for taking the time to provide us with this valuable market update. Uh, if you guys have any last questions, otherwise, have a great day. Thank you. Following today's discussion, I must read the following disclosures. Equity investments are affected by market conditions. The intrinsic value of the stocks in which our portfolios invest may never be recognized by the broader market. The, the opinions expressed are current as of October 20th, 2021, but are subject to change. The information provided in this podcast does not provide information reasonably sufficient upon which to base an investment decision and should not be considered a recommendation to purchase or sell any particular security. Portfolio holdings are subject to change. The performance of any single portfolio holding is no indication of the performance of other portfolio holdings of any strategy or fund. Comments made on any individual company or stock is not an indication that it is currently held in a portfolio nor is it an indication that it will ever be held on portfolio. Thank you for listening to the Gabelli Podcast.